The scripture lesson today is from Judges 3, 5 through 12. So the people of Israel lived among the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And their daughters they took to themselves for wives, and their daughters they gave to their sons, and they served their gods. And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. They forgot the Lord their God and served the Baals and the Asheroth. Therefore the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he sold them into the hands of the Cushim Rishathim, king of Mesopotamia. And the people of Israel served Kishim Rishathim eight years. But when the people of Israel cried out to the Lord, the Lord raised up a deliverer for the people of Israel, who saved them, Othniel, the son of Kenaz, Caleb's younger brother. The spirit of the Lord was upon him, and he judged Israel. He went out to war, and the Lord gave Cushim Rishatham, king of Mesopotamia, into his hand. And his hand prevailed over Cushim Rishatham, so the land had rest forty years. Then Othniel, the son of Kenaz, died, and the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And the Lord strengthened Eglon, the king of Moab, against Israel, because they had done what was evil in the sight of the Lord. The word of the Lord. out those names. Woo! Today we're in the book of Judges, and this is a very dark time in Israel's history. Some of you may have learned about some of the judges in Sunday school. Remember Samson and Gideon and Deborah. But if you go back and read these stories as an adult, you're going to be kind of shocked. Uh, these are PG-13 at minimum, a lot of these stories. And I can't believe HBO hasn't picked up on the book of Judges yet, because it seems to fit right with some of their programming. Okay? Even a lot of these characters that we learned in Sunday school as heroes, they're not really that much heroes. Okay? They are dark and, and, uh, and problematic characters. So, so let's think about this book of Judges and where it fits in this over idea, overall idea of salvation history, this movement of the whole Bible for God to save humanity. Well, Israel, having come out of Egypt and spent 40 years in the desert, they finally take the land of Israel, the, the Canaanite land, under the leadership of Joshua. But part of the challenge for them is they don't take it all, and they begin to be influenced by their neighbors. Now, there, there's a lot of cultural changes going on in Israel and around the world at this time, so you've got to understand the time period. Okay? Up until then, there's really not anything close to nations in the world. Okay, there's really like small communities, but most people, especially in this part of the world, were, were, uh, were, had a nomadic existence. They traveled around, they shepherded. Um, the only real powerhouses were these big empires, early on the Akkadians and then the Egyptians. But it's, it's during this period that people start figuring out farming. Okay, then we move from shepherding and a lot more hunter-gathering to being able to have communities. And up until this point, that is exactly what Israel's been through. Hey, think about it. Abraham is a shepherd. His family are all shepherds. They travel around. They don't have a particular home. And then they end up where? In Egypt as slaves. So what these people know how to do is make bricks and take care of sheep. When they move into the land, though, and they start to actually settle the land, they, they live a different kind of existence. They start to actually settle. 
um, we, we can look at uh, archaeology from this time period to see people starting to build communities, starting to farm. Technology develops to be able to catch rainwater and, and collect it in cisterns. This is hugely important. It means you don't have to live right next to the water source. You can live away from the water source and collect water. You can live up in the mountains that are more protected because they started to, to make terraces. In other words, these sort of steps on the hill. Instead of it being a, a hill, they would flatten out different steps. That way you could plant crops. They cleared land, built these terraces, built farms and vineyards. They start to live in villages with wine presses, with threshing floors. You get, you get this sense of communities, cities, and then cities start coming together to, be, to become nations. But Israel isn't that, you understand? Up until this point, they've, they've been a family, and now they're really a bunch of tribes. They, don't, they aren't together as a nation yet. There's no king. There's nothing to really bring them together. So Israel, the Israelites start to move into this land, and they start to learn all these things from their neighbors. They don't know how to farm. So they, they talk to the people that live there, and they, okay, how do you farm, and how do you set up all of these things? The problem is, along with learning farming, the Israelites start to, to learn what the Canaanites do to worship their gods to bring a bounce of farming. So on the left here is a statue of Baal. You hear about Baal a lot in the Bible. Baal is a Canaanite god. He is the god of fertility. And uh, a lot of times he's, he, you see statues of him. This is a statue that was found. See his arm up in the air? Originally, that probably had a lightning bolt in it because he was the storm god. The belief was for your crops to grow, the gods had to fertilize the soil. That was the rain. And so he was the, the belief was he was the storm god, but also the god of fertility. Okay? And he had an on-again, on-again, off-again relationship in all of the stories with Asherah, the goddess of fertility. Okay, you can see her, statues of her on the right. A lot of times uh, she's either shown as pregnant or shown as, uh, as you see there. And a lot of times Asherah was worshipped not with statues but with these sort of pillars, these sort of totems to Asherah. And, and uh, Asherah. The, the problem was Israel was also starting to do this. Okay, they didn't just learn the farming. They started to put these kind of idols next to their understanding of who God was, of who Yahweh was. And these gods, you, you worshipped by sacrificing. And a lot of times it involves sacrificing animals, but also sacrificing children, if the gods weren't giving you what you needed. And a lot of, okay, these are fertility gods, a lot of the, the acts of worship to these gods were very sexual in nature. And so Israel starts doing this. Okay? They start setting up temples, they start setting up altars to these gods. At the same time, Israel's moving into this land and having a number of victories over the Canaanite powers. Okay, not all of them, but a lot of them. And it, it creates sort of a power vacuum in this area. So not only are the Israelites trying to gain power, but then all these other nations that are around the Canaanites or within the Canaanites start trying to gather that power. Okay, Israel, uh, Egypt even comes up to, to control this major trade routes. But you hear about the Canaanites, the Moabites, the Ammonites, the Midianites, the Amalekites, all these different ites, right? They're all over the place that are trying to take over this land that is now open. At some point, there's a group called the Philistines. They come from somewhere else, probably in Europe. They're called sometimes the Sea Peoples. 
Okay, and they, they come and they move into the place as well. In other words, it's kind of the Wild Wild West, right? It's all these different nations. They're trying to become powerful, trying to control the place. And the problem for Israel is that if you, if you look at a map of the land, you'll, you'll see how important this is. Okay, so on, on, the, uh, on the right, you see the Sea of Galilee up top and the Jordan River running down that valley to, uh, that, to that bigger piece of, wa- of water to the bottom right, which is the Dead Sea. Okay? And then that's the Mediterranean Sea. But you see all that lush green that kind of curves up along the Mediterranean Sea? That's the coastal plain. That's some of the best farming land available. And then there's sort of a gap, and then you can see this, uh, this green that comes down uh, up towards the Sea of Galilee. That's called the Jezreel Valley. Okay? That's a lot of the really good farming. And if you follow along in the book of Judges, what you find is the problem is these other nations are coming in. And where are the Philistines? They're, they have a city called Gaza. It's right on the coastal plain. The Philistines take over the best farmland to the west. And then a lot of these other people are taking over the Jezreel Valley up in the north, which means Israel is now starting to huddle. Every time this happens, they're huddling in the mountains without access to these crops. They can only have a little bit of crops, a little, whatever you can farm, whatever you have terraces for, but, but they're losing the land that can really sustain them. The other thing they, they lose at one part in the story is Jericho, which is just above the Dead Sea. The problem there is some of the nations, some of the tribes of Israel stay to the east. They don't come into the promised land. They want land to the, outs, to the east of the, uh, of the Jordan River. And with Jericho falling... Those people are cut off from the rest of the people. Okay, Israel's live, very lives are threatened by this. And this movement of salvation history is problematic as well. We've been reading this story. This story that says God has chosen these people. They are God's promised people. They are to be blessed so that they can be a blessing to the nations. But here they are getting cut off from the food they need. Getting cut off from each other. Here they are not following the God that they're supposed to follow. This problem of sin, this separation from God continues. And in fact, it gets worse. So in the book of Judges, there's this series of judges that come up. And you need to know, judges don't really judge the way judges do in our legal system. It's not quite the same. Judges are leaders. And a lot of times they're military leaders. Okay? And so they, they, in the book, they go through this cycle. There's peace in the land of Israel, and Israel serves God. But then a generation comes up, and normally the text says something like uh, that everyone does what is right in their own eyes, or everyone does evil in the sight of the Lord. Okay, so a generation comes, doesn't know God, and it falls apart. God punishes Israel by allowing one of the other powers that it, to enslave Israel, or at least to dominate them. So the way the text happens is God uses the Midianites the Philistines, all these other people, to then bring Israel back. Israel cries out for help, and then God raises up one of these judges to overthrow the enemy. Israel is delivered and lives in peace. Some of the judges, like Deborah, we know, continues to sort of rule or to be in charge of Israel until her death. And then what do you think happens in the next generation? They do what's right in their own. So so there's a cycle. It just continues. And if you read the book of Judges, it's really repetitive. It just goes and goes and goes. And the other thing that happens in the book of Judges is as this cycle goes, each judge gets a little worse 
and a little worse and a little worse. So this cycle in the book of Judges is really like a downward spiral. That's really what it is. Where, where the judges aren't good either. The first few are okay. And then it gets worse and worse and worse. Let's look at a few of these judges. Othniel was the first judge. Uh, but there's not a lot to his story. In fact, uh, Patty read the entire story. Okay, He delivered the people from this king with a long name, Kushan Reshethiam of Mesopotamia. He is, however, a good example of this cycle in its simplest form. And, and we read that whole story for you so that you could see he delivers them, they start following God, and then the next generation, we have to do this all over again. He is followed by Ehud. Ehud sneaks into another king, uh, in the presence of another king. He gets in in the story because he's left-handed. Okay, And at that time, everybody was supposed to be, everybody fought right-handed. This is true in, in uh, samurai swordsmanship, too. There's no left-handed samurai. They're all right-handed, even if you were left-handed. How many, anybody go to school, and they tried to make you right-handed, even though you were left-handed? I mean, this just recently ended in history. Okay? Ehud is left-handed, though, and so he keeps his sword on his right hip, because you would cross to pull your sword. And so when he goes to sneak into the presence of the king, they check for his sword, but he, thought he doesn't have the sword where everybody else has a sword. He goes on the other side. He sneaks into the king. He goes into the king while he is in his portico. That's what the text says. Anybody know what a portico really is? It's the bathroom. Okay? That you would have an open area in your house where you would go to the bathroom. And so he, he sneaks in to talk to the king. He sneaks his sword to talk to the king in the bathroom. He ends up killing the king there. In very graphic description, by the way. Ehud is followed by Shamgar. Shamgar's his story is only one verse. It says he killed 600 Philistines with an ox goad. This is an ox goad, okay? Uh, it's just a stick with a little hook on the end, and it, it's about the most simple design you can, okay? When you need to goad an ox along, you just poke him with that thing, and the ox moves, okay? There's the whole story of Shamgar. Now, let me pause for a minute to make sure we're, we're kind of seeing this. This is a different world than we live in. So when we, when we read these stories, uh, you, we tend to judge them, although I, I would argue that our society is not as peaceful and as unviolent as we like to think it is. Uh, but, but, but so we, we can't judge it based on our standards. This is our ancient stories. And here's the other thing about the Bible. When the Bible describes that something happens, it doesn't mean it prescribes that you're supposed to do it. Okay? It's very important that I say this. Okay? I don't care how bad things get at work. Don't go buy an ox goad. That is not the scriptural understanding. That's not the lesson of the story. These are different times. So let's keep moving through the judges. There's, there's even a judge who is a woman, Deborah. And uh, Deborah led the Israelites against the Canaanite king Jabin. Jabin's commander, Sisera, led 900 iron chariots. So that's the other technological thing that's happening. Okay, this is iron and bronze. All of a sudden, iron and bronze are starting to come in. And so if you have iron, you know how to work it. You have bronze, you know how to work it. You can build chariots. Chariots are the tanks of the day. Right? So these tanks, these um, iron chariots are used to take over that Jezreel Valley. The Israelites, though, are hiding up in the mountains. The one thing chariots don't do well is mountains. They do flat ground. They don't do mountains. 
Cicero, they, they eventually use that high ground to their advantage. Sisera flees uh, and rests in the tent of Jael, a Canaanite woman who assassinates him by driving a tent peg into his temple. That's how the, this story describes it. This is one of those stories, right? Never made it on a coffee mug at the Christian bookstore. <laughs> now, a- after Deborah, who's a pretty good judge, the judges themselves get less and less faithful to God. Okay, next judge is Gideon. Gideon is this fearful man. When we meet him, he's hiding from the Midianites. After he tests God, he takes a small force, which God makes even smaller, and attacks the Midianites in the Jezreel Valley. The army is thrown into chaos, and Gideon pursues them. But if you read the story, Gideon is not quite the hero we think he might be. He also gets revenge by attacking other Israelites who don't come to their aid, who refuse to fight with them. And eventually he makes an idol, some kind of an idol, to be worshipped in Israel. In other words, he falls into the same stuff the people fall into. There's another story of Jephthah. Uh, I don't have a picture of Jephthah. Um, These aren't all real pictures either. But Jephthah was uh, this warrior that sort of lives up in the mountains. with with with, The text describes him as living with a bunch of bandits. Okay, he's kind of a mobster, this big tough guy, lives with all these bandits. But when you need to fight other bandits, you want the biggest bully you can find. (laughs) And that's what Israel does. They go and they ask him to lead them into battle, and he does, and he's successful. But again, he's not really a follower of God. In fact, when he gets back, before he leaves for the battle, he makes this vow that when he comes back from victory, whatever walks out of his house, he's going to sacrifice to God. See, he assumes that animals are going to be in his house because you kept animals in your house. But when he comes back, who comes walking out? But his daughter. But his daughter. But can you imagine to be a leader in Israel and assume that that's what God would expect? To, be, to, 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 under, to think that God, that's what God wants? This is a leader who, even though he's leading Israel, he doesn't really know who God is. Perhaps the best known judge... Maybe the least known judge, but at least best, most familiar judge is Samson. Um, and if you if you grow up, if you read the story now, it is not the Sunday school story that you remember. Okay, Samson uh, is very PG thirteen. Okay, he was born to parents who can't get pregnant, and the angel of the Lord tells him not to drink wine or drink beer or eat anything unclean, and he is never to cut his hair. Yes, he is strong, he's a good fighter, he takes on many soldiers, he even kills a lion. But if you read the story, he's also arrogant. He also has a thing for dishonest or bad women. And he's vengeful in the story. And in the end, he tells Delilah that his strength really comes from his hair. The problem with that is, it's actually not true. Okay, I don't know where Samson, if you go back and read the story again, I don't know where Samson gets the idea that his strength comes from his hair. Because that is not what God ever says. His strength comes from where? From God. It's not your haircut. Okay? Um, and, and so he doesn't even get right who the real source of his strength is. He ends up then losing his hair. or They cut his hair, he loses his strength, but not because he cut his hair. Because God takes away his strength. In the end, his eyes are gouged out and he is uh, paraded around in Gaza, the the head of the uh, the center of the Philistines, until one day he's starting to get his strength back. 
And he asks God to really give him his strength back so he can push down the pillars that he's leaning against as they make fun of him to do a, number of dam- a lot of damage to the Philistines, killing himself, but a number of Philistines with him. And then the book of Judges ends with a couple of stories that are really terrible and really complicated, so much so I'm not going to try to describe them all to you t- right now, um, particularly with some youth in the room. But go back and read these stories. They're terrible. But, but there's an important difference in these final stories. In the final stories, the problem isn't the Midianites or the Philistines or any of these other people. The problem in the end is Israel is being cruel to Israel. The tribes are being cruel to each other. So you see what the book of Judges does. There's this cycle of Judges, but it gets worse and worse and worse. That's, that is really a downward spiral for that cycle and we're all left to wonder what is going on here and if you think the stories are terrible good okay that's what you're supposed to think when you read these stories you're not supposed to read these stories and think these are great and fantastic okay you think these stories are fantastic the problem is is you it's not the stories you're supposed to think these are bad that's the point the point is this isn't working Okay? There's a bigger problem that Israel can't seem to solve. And if you've been tracking the whole story of the Bible, you understand that there's this greater sin problem. There's this greater problem of our separation from God. And, and the book even ends with this. It says, In those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what he wanted. So the book of Judges proposes, Ah, oh, maybe what we really need is a king. Of course, we're going to see in future weeks That doesn't work out either. No. What Israel and the world really need is a true judge, a right leader, the right king. Not just instruction and leadership. This sin problem has to be fixed. Otherwise, all these judges, all these kings, all these important people, they're just going to lead. They're just going to be bad too. God cannot just use imperfect vessels. God needs a perfect vessel. So here's the good news. Here's the grace of the book of Judges. Even though these people keep screwing up and they keep every generation does what's right in their own eyes, think about the grace of God here that he keeps coming back for them. He keeps hearing their cry. Okay, How many times does God forgive them? How many generations does God come back for them? I don't know about you, but if somebody burns me, it's over. (laughs) Right? Fool me once, good on you, because you're not getting another shot at this. Praise God that he is more gracious than that. (laughs) Praise God for my sake, for your sake, that God is more gracious than that. And, And here are the good news of this whole salvation story. That Jesus is everything that the judges are not. Okay, that Jesus is everything. Jesus is not selfish, he's selfless. He's not violent, but he actually sacrifices himself. He's not vengeful, but he's full of grace and truth. Jesus did what the judges could not, throwing off the, not just the burden of oppressive people, but actually the chains of sin that kept every generation going back to this. And here's our call. Our call is to be faithful to Jesus. But there is always this temptation, isn't there? And every generation does it different to do what's right in our own eyes. 
Every generation, there's this tempting temptation to do it, to throw off what everybody else did, throw off what my parents and grandparents figured out, and do it my own way. And if you've been around long enough, you call that like your 20s and 30s, right? <laughs> Every generation. And I think that in the world we are living in now, there's a lot of changes going on. It's a lot like the time of the judges, really, with, with economies changing and the way the world works just dramatically moving. And, and now we have all these things called nations, but, but, but really there's all these uh, more local communities and there's these larger sort of global economies. I mean, we live in a time that in some ways matches the disequilibrium of the time of the judges. We live in a culture that worships everything but the one true God. We live in a nation that seems gripped by fear and looking for security. And we, look, we, see it. we live in a world where people are grasping at power to try to control the fears that they have. And if you think our world has progressed so much that we're so outraged at these stories, then you're not paying attention to the news. January 27th, I don't even if you know this, a number of us were on our way to Israel. It was on my mind on the way. January 27th was the 75-year anniversary of the liberation of the Auschwitz concentration camp. Okay, that's, that's Holocaust Remembrance Day. But that was the 75-year anniversary. We're only 75 years removed from the Holocaust. We're only 26 years removed from the genocide at Rwanda. And if you turn on the news, all the bad stuff the murder, the, the kidnapping, the rape, all this stuff that you'll see that you'd be outraged in judges, I guarantee you, they happen not too many miles from us every week. Maybe this world is still a dark and violent place. Maybe we need more than ever to follow Jesus, to have him reign supreme. To not judge other people, but to really let Jesus be Lord. So may the book of Judges be a warning for us that we must keep our faith in Jesus. We must not do what is right in our own eyes. And we must pass our faith on to future generations. Let's pray. Lord, these are not easy texts. These are not easy words. But they are there for us as a warning. We thank you for your grace and your love that you still pursue us. That you come back to us when we cry out. That you use flawed leaders and flawed people. May we trust in your grace. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.